nine. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with his disciples in that. Um, I'm going to get Rowan Kemp, um, who's ahead of the staff team, to come up and talk to us, but I'll just pray for him to support that. Um, dear Lord, thank you so much for bringing us all here today. And I pray that you'll be revealing yourself to us through your word now. And I pray that you'll be speaking through Rowan. Amen. Good to see you here. Uh, hand up if you were at EU's public meeting, uh, public meeting, annual conference last week. A whole bunch of you. Fantastic. One of the great moments uh, of last week was when we were told that uh, one of the many non-Christians who were there for the week had become a Christian in the course of the week. Someone actually came to Christ last week. That was very exciting. And what we just heard in that story, just read for us from the book of Acts chapter 9, was when Paul, also called Saul, became a Christian. It was if you didn't realise, the original Damascus Road experience you hear people talk about, it all comes from that particular moment where Saul, travelling along a road, meets the risen Lord Jesus in his glory and realises at that point this Christian message is true and becomes a Christian, a committed Christian, actually. What we're going to talk about today are that reality of when people come to Christ when they are converted, when they become Christians. In particular, the one thing I want you to walk away with today is to know from God's Word that 
with the one true living God, there is no heart that is too hard to be one for Christ. There is no heart too hard. There are no truly just hard cases when it comes to Jesus. God can work in anyone's heart. I want us to understand that from the Bible. I want us to understand why that's true. And then I want you to hopefully walk out of this lecture room today and live differently in the light of that truth. That's what I'm hoping is going to happen today. So we're going to be looking here at this little section of Acts. We're actually going to be looking at Acts chapters 8 and 9. That's sort of where we're up to in our sort of on-again, off-again period this year as we look through the book of Acts. Uh, but to start with, I want to give you a little bit of background, a bit of the scene, if you like. If you've got your Bible there, it's super helpful to open it up to Acts chapter 8, the first four verses to start with. But we are going to do a bit of Bible flipping today uh, to try to enrich our understanding of this text, and so it'd be useful to call it up or have it on your phone, that'd be great. A bit of scene setting, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. What has gone on in the book of Acts to this particular point? Well, back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus who'd been crucified and who, miraculously, under the power of God, had been raised back to life again, he appears to his disciples and he says to his closest 12 followers, or 11 of them at this particular point, he says to them, you will be my eyewitnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, which are the two surrounding regions, and to the ends of the earth. That's the setup for the book of Acts, right? That's what Jesus has said, that's what they were to do. What has happened between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 6 is that the apostles, those chosen eyewitnesses, they have been proclaiming about Jesus, but they've been doing it only in Jerusalem. And they've been doing it only to fellow Jews. That's what's been going on in Acts 1 to 6. They've been proclaiming the message about Jesus. People have been coming to faith, becoming Christians. The number of Christians has grown, but also as they've done that, there was increasing persecution as that message about Jesus spread throughout Jerusalem. That persecution and opposition reached a bit of a climax in Acts chapter 6 and 7 with the death of Stephen. You can see it represented there in the painting on the, on the wall there. The death of Stephen, who is the first Christian martyr killed by his fellow Jews because he would not stop proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the risen Lord of all. Now you might think, wow, surely at that moment, once they killed somebody for being a Christian, maybe that was sort of, everyone pulled back a bit. That's not what happened. If you read, look there in that, uh, there you can see Saul, who we're going to read in Acts chapter 9, giving a proof of death, a great person out against Jerusalem, all except the apostles were throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So, what's been going on? The persecution comes to a bit of a head with the execution of Stephen, but that actually just lights the fuse for an even greater persecution that breaks out against the Christians there in Jerusalem, so much so that most of the Christians are scattered. They leave the city. The apostles stay, but everyone else flees. What do they do as they flee? Well, what they do there, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So they just kept on proclaiming about Jesus wherever they were scattered. Where were they scattered? It was there in verse 3. Verse 2, two sorry. Throughout Judea and Samaria. 
Now, where had Jesus say said that you know the message about him needed to be proclaimed? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So actually, God uses this persecution to spread the good news about Jesus into those surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. They go preaching the word throughout those regions. That's the setup, right, for what we're going to meet. So now what we're going to see in chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Acts is we're going to meet three hard cases. Three people who you would think would never be really fully part of the people of God. Three particular hard cases. And in each case we're going to see that actually the power of God in this gospel message of Jesus breaks through and wins them into the people of God. Three hard cases. Okay, So we're going to flick through them pretty fast. Here is the first one. First of all, hard case number one, from sorcery to salvation in Samaria. This centers around, this first one centers around a guy by the name of Philip. Philip was one of the seven who was chosen in Acts chapter 6 to help with the food distribution problem that occurred amongst God's people, the new Christians there in Jerusalem. Uh, but he wasn't just you know, good at managing food and people, he was actually he was a proclaimer of Jesus. What you read here uh, in verse 5 is, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Now, why is it surprising that he goes to Samaria? We know that it's scattered out of Jerusalem. You've got to have a bit of background here to understand what was, why the Jews were so sceptical about the Samaritans. You know that story about the Good Samaritan and how Jesus tells it and how it's so surprised? Why was it so surprising, that story, that it's a Samaritan who shows kindness and love? Why is that so surprising? Well, because if you've got to know the background of Samaria. Now, if you're at annual conference... You'll know that in one of the talks there, we talked about trying to give a bit of a Bible timeline and how the whole sort of Bible story fits together. You might remember in the Old Testament, God's people were one political nation, right? And then what happened after the time of King Solomon? That nation split, you might remember, into two. There was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Northern kingdom gets wiped out by the Assyrians because of their idolatry, right? Now, what you don't probably know is how the Assyrians, as superpower of the day, how they managed to keep all of their territory that they took over, all these countries that they took hold of, how did they keep those territories subdued? How did they stop a particular country that they overtook rising up in rebellion against them? They had a very clever strategy. Maybe useful for you when you take over New Zealand, say, or something like that. What you do is you take a whole bunch of the people from that territory you've overtaken, in this case New Zealand, you go and grab a whole bunch of them and you forcibly move them elsewhere in your kingdom. So you pick up a whole bunch of Tasmanians and you plonk them in, sorry, New Zealand, and you wouldn't want to invade Tasmania, of course, would you? Uh, you pick up a whole bunch of New Zealanders, you plonk them in Western Australia and, that, and spread them out across your kingdom. And simultaneously, you take people from all other parts of your kingdom and you forcibly move them into that territory. So what happened in that northern kingdom was that a whole bunch of the Israelites were taken out and a whole bunch of other cultures and religions who had been sort of come under the rule of the Assyrians were moved in and they brought with them their gods and their religious practices. What then happened, if you go ahead and read the story as in 2 Kings chapter 17 there, you can see that what happened in that northern kingdom which became this area of Samaria 
what happened there was that they started to not just, they no longer just worship the Lord, the God of the Jews, they started worshipping all these other gods as well. In fact, they brought them sort of all together and would worship all of them. It was a syncretistic religion where you bring different religions together. Okay? That's what was going on in the Northern Kingdom. That's why the Jews in the Southern Kingdom despised the people living in Samaria. Because those guys were traitors to Yahweh. What did Yahweh said? You shall have no other gods but me. And the Samaritans had taken on all sorts of gods as well as Yahweh. And that was abhorrent. And so that's why they hated and detested those living in Samaria. So they would think there's no hope for the Samaritans to be back in the people of God. Not given their idolatry. Not given their syncretism. You can see this syncretism here in Acts chapter 8. If you've got your Bible there, have a look. Verse 9 we read, Now for some time a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city of Samaria, in Samaria, and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power, known as the great power. That is, this man is working with the power of God, the one true God. What's he doing? He's doing sorcery, witchcraft. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that's outlawed amongst God's people. Here, the people of Samaria are being impressed by witchcraft and going, that's God's power at work. Completely syncretistic in their understanding of what, what God is like. But what happens in Samaria? As, as Philip goes down and starts preaching about Jesus, what happens is the power of the gospel breaks through. We'll start by looking at verse 6 of chapter 8. We know from verse 5 that Philip was proclaiming the Christ. Verse 6, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. His shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city because they're seeing the power of God at work. Jump down to verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself, the sorcerer, believed and was baptised, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So the power of this message about Jesus breaks through into Samaria, and people become Christians, they're baptised, included into the people of God. You think, well, isn't that good? That's a nice story. Isn't that a good story? God's gospel, breaking forth. You need to understand, you need to understand how significant a moment this was in God's plans for the world. And you'll only understand that if you remember Ezekiel 37. You're going, yeah, I don't know what's in So let's turn up Ezekiel 37, because then you'll get excited about the story we just read, if it's not exciting enough already. Ezekiel 37... Let's go back to this prophecy from Ezekiel, Ezekiel, an Old Testament prophet, writing hundreds of years before, writing after Assyria had wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel and only Judah was left. Ezekiel, a bit of a strange prophet, I don't know if you've read Ezekiel before, I mean, at one point he lies on his side for a year and a half to make a point to the people of Israel or Judah, and like he just did weird stuff. This is one of his more tame moments. Um, but nevertheless, let's have a look at it. Verse 15 of Ezekiel 37, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, says Ezekiel. Son of man, take a stick of wood, 
and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, Ephraim stick belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. It's another name for the northern kingdom, Ephraim. Verse 17. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? I think they were used to saying that to his Ephraim. What the heck are you doing now? Like, what's that about? What are you doing? Say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on, and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them. They will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offences, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. Here's this great promise God makes, hundreds of years before. No, I'm going to bring everyone back. There's not going to be two nations. There's going to be one nation under one king, David, that is David's descendants, coming from David's line, under the Christ, the Messiah. There's going to be one nation. <coughs> what a lovely promise. And you wait. When, when is that fulfilled? Hundreds of years. When is it fulfilled? Fulfilled yet? When are they coming back? When are they going to be welcomed? When, when does the moment happen? The moment happens here in Acts 8 when Philip preaches the gospel about Jesus, the son of David, the promised king, the Christ, to the people in Samaria and they come to faith in Jesus and they become part of the one people of God. How do you know that's the moment? Well, back in Acts chapter 8, there's this weird thing that happens where they're baptised in Jesus' name but for some reason God withholds the Holy Spirit from them, which is not normal. Normally when you become a Christian, you're blessed with the Holy Spirit. God seems to withhold it until the apostles from Jerusalem hear about what's going on, they trot down, what's going on down there in Samaria, that's weird, they check it out, it seems like they believe in Jesus, they haven't received the Spirit, they pray for them and the Spirit comes on them and the apostles go, okay, right, they're getting the Spirit, we got the Spirit, this is, here it is, this is the new people of God, you can be a Samaritan and part of the new people of God, we thought they were excluded, but no, they're part of God's people too. And interestingly, the two apostles, Peter and John, after they've checked that out in Samaria, what do they do on their way back to Jerusalem? They preach the gospel of Jesus in all the Samaritan towns along the way. They go, ah, okay, Jesus said, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria are happening. Right, we better get on with that. And so they do it. Here is these people who were seemingly excluded, now included. Right? A hard case, but now included in the people of God. It's a spiritual reality not a political reunification. It's a spiritual reunification. Okay, let's move on to hard case number two. From exclusion to joy in Judea. Still on about Philip, if you jump in there at verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch 
an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Why do I call this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch, a hard case? Well, you've got to understand, where is Ethiopia? Well, what they called Ethiopia back then in the first century is probably modern-day Sudan. That's in Africa. Right? Sudan, a heck of a long way from Jerusalem. That's going to take you a long time by chariot, right? To get from one to the other. This guy is representatively in some sort, he sort of is from the ends of the earth, isn't he? He's on from such a long way away. What's more, he worships the Jewish God. He's been up to Jerusalem to worship. The Jews have spread all around sort of parts of different parts of the world and he had come to a belief in the Jewish God. And so he'd come all the way up to Jerusalem to worship. He's obviously a fairly important person. He's the treasurer of the whole sort of Ethiopian kingdom. That's a, you know, he's the Joe Hockey of, of Ethiopia. And instead of smoking a cigar, he's reading the book of Isaiah, right? <laughs> As he goes back from Jerusalem, back to, he's reading it, so he, he's wealthy enough to own a scroll. Scrolls are all handwritten, right? Incredibly uh, expensive to have, have one copied out for you. Anyway, he's reading this scroll of Isaiah. So he's a worshipper of Yahweh. However, he's a eunuch. It means he's been castrated, right? Has his te- testicles dried up, killed off, right? Uh, and which, as sometimes happened in some of these sort of kingdoms, for important officials, that would be sort of a mark of your sort of um, service, I guess, to the kingdom, and that was just what happened. Anyway, he's a eunuch. What that means for him, though, as, as someone who wants to worship the Jewish God, is because of Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, there was no way that he, as a eunuch, would be allowed into the temple. Anyone who had been maimed or had some sort of some sort of physical deformity or who had been made a eunuch was not allowed into the symbolic presence of the living God there in the temple ground. So even though he'd come to Jerusalem to worship, he was never able to fully participate in fellowship amongst <coughs> God's people. He was forever excluded. Well, what happens when this guy hears the gospel of Jesus? There he is reading the prophet uh, Isaiah and he's reading a particular passage about, it says there in uh, verse 13, the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before the shearer is silent so he did not open his mouth. And then he asked Philip down in verse 34, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Now I don't know if you know much about Isaiah the prophet, but who, who is the lamb who was led to the it's a passage about the Messiah, about the suffering servant. It's a passage about Jesus. And so what does Philip do? Well, Philip, once he's been asked, doesn't have to be asked twice. Verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news, the gospel about Jesus. Now, we're not told everything that Philip said, but presumably what he would have said is, it's about that passage is fulfilled in Jesus, who was crucified, died for our sins here in Jerusalem, but was raised back to life, seen by, seen by many, of, many people, and now his, his name and his gospel has been proclaimed throughout all the world, and anyone who comes to him in faith and is baptised into his name, they can have real life. They have forgiveness of sins and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, what does the, what does the Ethiopian eunuch say? He hears this message about that the Christ has come, 
and that he's been raised and is now alive, he says, as they travelled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. Which is what that painting shows. Here's this guy. Wants to worship the one true living God. Has been forever excluded because of the Old Testament law. Hears about the Christ has come, Jesus has come. Puts his faith in Jesus, baptised into his name. And guess what? Now he is a part of God's people. He's a part of God's people. And you think, well, that's a good story. That's a good story. It's more than just a good story. Here are the awesome plans of God coming through again. And if you know Isaiah 53, then you'll know why. So open your Bible. Let's have a look there. Sorry, Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. Think about that story of the Ethiopian eunuch in light of what we read here in Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 verses 3 to 8. The Lord says here through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, who hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them, besides those already gathered. Beautiful promise there that you don't have to be a member of God's nation of Israel to be part of his people, right? A promise that foreigners will be part of God's people. A promise that eunuchs, people who are excluded by the law, will become part of God's people. When does that happen? You wait hundreds of years after Isaiah gets this prophecy from the Lord. Hundreds of years. And when does it finally happen? It finally happens on that road from Jerusalem to Gaza, that desert road, as Philip preaches to this Ethiopian eunuch and he comes to faith in Jesus, then he is drawn into the people of God. But interestingly, what was the promise here in Isaiah 56? It was that they would have a place in God's temple. Where is the eunuch going? Is he going to the temple when this happens or away from the temple? He's going away from the temple. That is, this promise is fulfilled not in the physical temple. It's fulfilled when he comes to faith in Jesus. So what the, the spiritual reality here is that there is a new spiritual temple, a new, uh, the people of God are the new temple in which God by his spirit works. And that's what's fulfilled as the gospel of Jesus is preached. Okay, so that's hard case number two, from exclusion to joy in Judea. And finally, hard case number three, from persecutor to preacher in Damascus. 
This is the story we started with in Acts chapter 9 that Christy read for us, the conversion of Saul. Now Saul, you have to remember, Saul was the great persecutor of Christians. We heard that at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. We heard in uh, verse 3 of chapter 8 that Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women, put them in prison. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we read Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's who Saul was. In fact, he'd gone to the high priest in Jerusalem and asked for letters of introduction to synagogues, Jewish synagogues in Damascus, so he could travel down to there and get their help in rounding up the Christians because he wanted to drag them off to prison. That's who this guy was. He was so zealous for the one true living God that he thought he would show his zeal by killing off Christians. That's who he was. And yet, there on the Damascus Road, the Lord Jesus appears to him. Once again, the good news of God's Gospel about Jesus breaks through. This time, the risen Jesus himself appears and and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul is pretty thrown by that. He's going, well, who are you? <laughs> who are you, Lord? Like, clearly some sort of divine epiphany. But who, who? And then Jesus identifies himself. This is in chapter 9, there in verse 5. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Uh, he's struck blind by the experience. He's led into the city of Damascus. He's there for three days, fasting, praying. Uh, the Lord appears in a vision to Ananias and says to Ananias, who's a believer, who's a Christian, living there in Damascus, says, I want you to go to this guy Saul. Uh, I've told him that through a vision you're going to appear, you're going to come to him. I want you to go and pray for him uh, that he might receive the Holy Spirit. Ananias, understandably, is a bit stressed by this. Because Ananias is a Christian and he's heard about Saul and knows that Saul is rounding up Christians to have them arrested. And now Ananias has to go and turn up where Saul's staying and go and say, Hi, Saul, um, I'm a Christian. Why why would you do that, right? And so so Ananias sort of says, Well, uh, do you know who, like, Lord, you know who Saul is, right? Like, you've got this. And Jesus answered right there, you can see, he's just, Go, (laughs) verse 15, go. This man, namely Saul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias goes, he places his hands on Saul, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he can see again, he's baptised in the name of Jesus and within days, we read there, within days, he's back in the synagogues in Damascus, but not asking for the names of the Christians. He's now preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And that's, that throws people. You can read it there, there from uh, verse 19 onwards. In fact, that so disturbs the Jews living in Damascus that after a little while they want to have him killed and decide to kill Saul. He has to escape from the city in a fairly demeaning sort of way, let down through a window on a rope. Uh, and he makes his way to Jerusalem and again receives a fairly sort of cautious reception from some there in Jerusalem because of his past. This is the amazing story of how Saul went from a persecutor to a preacher of the, of the Lord Jesus. And what we see here in this particular story is God's plan 
to have that message about Jesus extend to all the Gentiles, which we haven't got to yet, that's going to happen through this guy Saul, somehow. So you have to come back next week to start to hear that how that happens. What Saul does, though, interesting in the rest of his life, became known as Paul because of his work amongst the Greek-speaking people, uh, he looks back on his conversion as a particular hard case given to you and me so that we might take encouragement that if Saul can become a believer in Jesus, so can I, so can just about anyone else. Let me read to you how Paul himself reflects on it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll just read this out for you. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Listen to what how Saul Paul describes this. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that were in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. You see what he's saying there, right? He's saying, you think that God can't have mercy on you. If you think God can't have mercy on your friend, he says, remember my example. I was a persecutor of the church of God. I was a violent man. But God had mercy on me as an example that he can have mercy on others. So, draw together some final reflections. There really are, under God, no hard cases. You might think that your friend, there's no way they will come to faith in Christ. Maybe they went to a church school. They have been so inoculated against the gospel by hearing it in school that there's no way they will come to faith. Maybe you think your family members, there's no way they would come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Maybe you think your workmates, they wouldn't come to Christ. Or the people you'll meet on campus, in your tutes and labs and classes, they would Don't think like that. That's not Christian biblical thinking. There are no hard cases. No, no heart is too hard for the Lord God. In fact, what we've seen in these stories is that God has a plan. He has a purpose. And that is to win people to faith in Christ that they might have life and forgiveness in his name. So do not forget the power of God through his gospel. Don't think people can't come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Remember, after all, didn't he win you over? Didn't he show mercy to you? Haven't you come to faith in Christ despite a hard heart? That's how God is at work. So therefore, have confidence in God's gospel. Remember what Paul himself would write later in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 about the gospel. He says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. You might think when you share the good news about Jesus or when you read Luke's gospel uncovered with somebody, you think, what weak words. What a weak message. It's not weak. It's the power of God. And we saw it in these three people's lives. You've heard it in your own life and it can be true in the life of your family and your friends. 
there are no hard cases, no heart to heart for God. Dear Lord, you show us again and again in your word that there is no heart too hard for you about him. And God called they will save and transform even the worst of sinners. And we thank you for giving us access to that extraordinary message and for showing us mercy. And we do pray that you'll help us to remember and be convinced that your gospel can change any heart, especially when we're talking uh, to the people in our own lives who seem very far away from being saved. Please break down our cynicism and give us patience and hope as we act as a witness for you among our friends and family. And help us to persevere in praying for them. Amen. Amen.